It's surprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days This representation of storm brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my change Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better While balancing running with the rest of their lives And we got another Coach's Corner episode here for you with two amazing coaches and elite runners to boot. We have Dr. Stephanie Flippin, who's been on the podcast about as many times as I have, and for good reason. She's awesome. She's the best. That's for, that's for sure. She was recently at the podium again at the U.S. ATF 100-mile champions, uh, champions championships. There it is. Uh, in addition to that, she's also a coach with Lift, Run, Perform, and she's an ankle and foot doctor. So she hits all the bases. And we have Adam Mary here as well. Adam is one of the best ultra and trail runners in the country and he has his own coaching business and he is chock full of good information so why wait let's get into it with adam and stephanie all right we are back with another coach's corner episode i know how much everyone loves these and i love them as well and no more than today because we got stephanie flippin is back on the show and she is joined we are joined by adam mary as well adam Thank you for joining us. Congratulations on your performance last week at Way Too Cool 50K. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm super excited to be here. And uh, yeah, Way Too Cool is an awesome race. Uh, NorCal Ultras does a great job putting it on. And um, it's actually really cool. So, you know, their little mascot is a frog. And there's a section of the trail that you run by that there's this huge like frog uh, kind of like bog that, and you can hear them. It's really cool. So yeah, it was a fun race. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I just, I always love the name of the race. It obviously sticks out so easily. And it's just been a legendary race in the ultra community for a while. With that said, I, because I've never run it, I'm from Rhode Island. I've never even been to that area. I was completely naive to the fact that it actually starts from cool California. I, I This blew my <laughs> mind. I had no idea. Yep. It's like a tiny little speck of a town, you know, not even really a town, but um, it's beautiful. That whole area is just, uh, yeah, if you're ever in the Sacramento area, anyone or Folsom, it's worth a trip for sure. That's saying people who listen to this show, so many of them have been to that area because that's also where the California National Marathon starts. Oh, of course. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So all of those, a lot of that uh, race, Way Too Cool, runs on the Western States Trail that folks might be familiar with. So yeah, it's a really classic area. Yeah, it's funny because I, I like didn't realize how close they all were. My friend Jonathan Levitt, who um, from Inside Tracker and, and, and also is a podcast host, he was at... California National Marathon with me, but then drove up for the lottery of Western States and then drove back yeah. to the expo. I'm like, wait, mm-hmm. we were all this close the whole time? I had no idea. Yes, yes. All right. So we're going to get going. So everyone who's listened to these shows before, these Coaches Corner episodes, I basically will then you know ask people in the community, what are your questions right now? We kind of bring all the, the responses back. And then I pose the questions to our experts who are not only high-level runners, but coaches as well, which is always really exciting. So if you want to get your question involved in this, I guess follow me on Instagram. So when I ask people, you can submit your question. Then we'll take it from there. Uh, these questions are in no particular order. Um, but I guess we'll start with something fairly recent for both of you because you've both raced recently. Uh, Steph ran um, the 100-mile uh, U.S. Championships as well, which is also an unbelievable race. And congratulations, Steph. Uh, Thank whoever you. Full deep brief last time you were at that race yeah <laughs> um yeah that was an awesome time um i think um i'm a bit uh a little bit more removed than than adam is from way too cool at this point i think i'm about three weeks out um so i'm hopping back into training now um that 
my brain is like, all right, let's forget about all that suffering you just went through um, for 100 miles. Um, let's get on to the next one. So it was a great day out there. Such a deep field. Um, so many incredible performances. So, yeah. I know it was it was incredible, and you did, you did well. And anytime you see a female take the overall win, it, oh, it it's yeah. hard. It it always makes big news. And what Camille did in that race was historic. Right? There's no other word for it. It was absolutely historic. Oh yeah, historic. Um, such an honor to. I I just feel so fortunate to have been able to be on the podium again um, with her and my teammate Nicole. It was just a great day. So yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I will, and, and kudos to anyone who's done that, who's done that race, because I just, I just can't imagine, like I, I live on a mile neighborhood and I'm like, if I do like a five mile run in this neighborhood, I'm like, oh God, that was the worst. Like I can't imagine doing a hundred. It's a mental race for sure. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm going to need a, a little bit of a breather from those looped courses. Um, I need to get back out onto the trails for a bit. <laughs> That's for sure. I know it's because you live in the mountains. I for you must be like, what am I doing down here? <laughs> I know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. I mean, and for Camille, it must have been like, wow, this is so great having a change of scenery, considering when she, you know, all of her, all of her track <laughs> performances. You're like, oh, this is just, this is wild. Yeah, this is a huge loop. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. Yeah. All mm-hmm. right, so let's dive into it. My dogs are shaking in the background. Hopefully, we can take some of that, some of that sound in, uh, out in uh, in the editing process after the fact. But let's dive into the first one. I brought I brought up your most recent races because it dovetails nicely with this first question: race week workouts. Right. Let's talk about this because obviously we have the tapering issues that come up with certain races, you know, especially with A races versus B races, and people who listen to this are running a variety of different races, all right, from the 5K all the way up to the 50K, all right? So we'll talk, Adam, with you. How have you approached, we'll just stick with the, with A races for now because with B races, that's a little bit more like you, you can make it work and the, the outcome of the race isn't nearly as important for people. But for A races, how have you approached race week from a workout perspective versus, you know, putting in the easy miles? Mm, yeah, great question, Matt. And actually, we were talking a little bit before we went on the air here. And it's, uh, I think it's worth mentioning because it's so different, like for every individual and kind of depends on the event you're training for, uh, perhaps what time of the year it is with, uh, you know, if your training's periodized and where you're at in your different cycles. So for a races, um, yeah, I think it's really a process. uh, If you have a coach working with your coach to try different taper strategies, because there's a, you know, there's like three week taper, two week taper, some athletes perform better with very little taper, no taper at all. Um, so if you have a coach, like kind of going back and forth with them and trying different races to see what works best for you. Um, but I think as a general rule of thumb, certainly with athletes that I work with and what I find, you know, generally works well for me as an athlete is to make sure that the workouts, any, any workouts or, uh, you know, uh, running, you're doing above an easy effort race week is like uplifting and invigorating and not, um, something where you're digging into the well at all, or, you know, um, pushing above lactate threshold for any meaningful amount of time. Like it should feel, it should be giving you confidence, not just mentally, but physically kind of like feeling good. Um, I focus with all my athletes on, um, giving them feel good workouts race week. All right. Let me follow up on that real quick with you, Adam. Do you just, do you, alter your approach for say the longer events whether it's like a two three four hour event where maybe the race pace 
is fairly close potentially to easy pace as opposed to maybe something a little bit snappier and faster like the hour the half hour to the 45 minute range where there could be a pretty wide discrepancy between easy pace and potential race pace yeah definitely so for uh yeah again just generalizing here like for athletes that are um racing marathon plus type of distances uh i and like i guess kind of four hour plus time range um I usually err on the side of feeling more fresh uh, come race day and making sure that we're really like, um, yeah, if we, if we have to err on one side or the other, that we're on the fresher side come race day. And um, and then, yeah, for shorter stuff, like maybe 5K, 10K, half marathon type of uh, racing, uh, making sure that we're still touching on that um, race pace or slightly faster than race pace um, intensity and speed, uh, just reducing the... Um, density or the volume of those reps um in our in the week leading up in the workouts all right stephanie is there anything that adam said that you want to either you know provide your own insight to or maybe double down on yeah no i i I echo all of the sentiments um and principles that adam you know i I was nodding along the entire time um i'm I'm definitely a a type of coach that airs that's always going to air on the more conservative side i always want my athletes to be lining up feeling fresh versus overcooked I mean, you know, science, exercise, physiology tells us that there's really no benefit of really going to the well. There's no fitness gains that can really be made. Um, even in those like last three weeks, um, you know, Adam touched on like a three week versus two week taper. Um, you know, and this is something I've witnessed with myself as, as an athlete. Um, and I've, I've tinkered, you know, and gone back and forth with my own coach, um, Patrick Reagan on that, um, and what works best for me. Um, but yeah, same thing. Um, what Adam mentioned is I think it's so important with race week workouts and even, you know, the, the week prior to the race when you're two weeks out is to really be building the athlete's mental confidence. Um, I think what Adam mentioned is, you know, those workouts being uplifting, that's an incredible way of describing it. Um, you know, for for that reason, I really like to lock in, you know, that very specific race effort and really focus on specificity. Obviously, like we just chatted about and Matt, you brought up um, that that is going to be a little bit different, you know, if we're looking at, you know, an athlete that's lining up for 100K, you know, or, or something, you know, longer than that four hour mark, just because, you know, those efforts are, you know, by nature going to be more aerobic. Um, but, you know, for my marathon athletes, um, you know, I really for some of my athletes that do better with kind of like a, a more, um, you know, intense taper, you know, and really dialing things back. Sometimes I'll even just give 10 by one minute um, at marathon effort, one minute easy, you know, on that Tuesday, if we're looking at a Saturday race, obviously that's a very, you know, a, it should be a very easy workout for them. Um, but sometimes just really telling them, Hey, keep the pace and the effort honest for this. We're really just, our, our fitness is there. There's nothing more to be gained. We really just want to lock in that effort. Um, you know, and, and one other thing is that, um, I, I feel, I so strongly feel that every athlete benefits from a, a good shakeout run the day prior, um, to a race kind of no matter the distance. Um, you know, I, I, I so strongly feel, like I said, it, it across every kind of fitness level, um, every athlete will benefit from, you know, that 20 minute easy run, you know, and I usually prescribe at least like four to six strides. Again, it, it doesn't even matter if you're a five hour marathoner, I'm still going to prescribe you those four to six strides, you know, with a 30 second non-active recovery, you know, a standing walking recovery. It really just helps shake things out. Um, and I think those principles can really be applied to all fitness levels. When it comes to bringing up confidence here, Stephanie, 
I, I can see different people being at different points about you know what what that might mean to them. So let's talk about somebody who is going into a race and you're getting the sense that their perception of their fitness is less than what your perception of their fitness is. So maybe you say, all right, this person, we'll just use round numbers. You think they can go out there and run the marathon at eight minute pace, right? So coming in at 3.30 roughly. And they're kind of like, ah, I think it's more like 8.45. I don't think I'm at 8.30 pace, but you feel pretty strongly that they are there. How would say you prescribing things to boost their confidence align with that situation versus someone who you guys are kind of simpatico and they don't necessarily need a confidence boost from their training. They just maybe need to feel something else. Yeah. Um, I usually find, um, with athletes that are maybe not on the same page, you know, and they're, they're maybe not able to look at their training as objectively, um, you know, as, as a coach is able to, um, I really find that kind of just making certain tweaks to the specific workouts can be really helpful. Um, like I'm thinking a very specific type of workout that I like to, um, prescribe for those types of athletes instead of giving them, you know, like a 20 to 25 minutes, you know, at threshold, I mean, that's a, that's an enormous workout by the way. Um, you know, if we're really hitting that like lactate threshold, but, um, instead of prescribing them like a really invasive, like, you know, they're, they're pulling up their log and they're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to run, you know? 20 to 30 minutes, like at that effort, I really like to incorporate, um, you know, like float recoveries, um, and using kind of marathon effort or marathon plus 10 to 15 seconds as the float recovery. Um, so something like say five rounds of, you know, three minutes, you know, at half marathon effort, two minutes at marathon plus 10 seconds or 10 to 15 seconds, um, something like that to where, you know, it's, it's more manageable to them. Um, it's breaking up that tempo or that, you know, that threshold effort. And then when they've completed the workout, you know, and their splits populate, they're like, oh, dang, like the pace that I averaged for that kind of workout is right on where, um, Steph said that I was going to be, um, you know, that's just an example, but making like a slight tweak like that so that you're not having them head out for something that just on paper seems so intimidating, um, kind of the same thing with like giving someone like eight by mile repeats at a certain, you know, a certain pace, you can make those tweaks to where, you know, like they'll end up averaging that same, that same pace. Um, and that just kind of helps reinforce to them, like, no, you can do it, but we just needed to approach it in a different format. Adam, I feel like I cut you off before when I was asking that question, were you about to say something? No. Well, I've just, again, been nodding uh, as Stephanie has been dropping all this knowledge. I think we take uh, from uh, a lot of from the same playbook. Um, It's really great to hear her strategies. Um, Yeah, no, I think um, for me with athletes that maybe aren't on the same page in terms of what I think they're capable of, you know, looking at their training and their uh, subjective data that they write in their training log and what they feel like they're capable of. One little trick I like to do, um, in addition to a broken tempo type of, uh, you know, workout, which Stephanie was mentioning is always great, um, with, uh, athletes that are training for the marathon, um, you know, many weeks in advance, um, a go-to workout for me is like, uh, you know, kind of a power hour for a more advanced athlete or like power 45 type of thing at marathon pace. And what I, what I do with them is, uh, tell them not to look at their watch and to just go on feel and, um, what I've found with doing that with certain athletes, like once or twice in the buildup, in the lead up to the marathon is they show themselves, oh my gosh, I was running like, you know, 30 seconds faster per mile than I thought I was capable of. And so then we can draw from that on race day. And uh, I always tell athletes, it's kind of maybe counterintuitive, like 
especially in a big major marathon or big city marathon, like, hey, I want you looking at your watch for that first mile to keep yourself in check, like slow down because you know, like everyone's going out hot. But after that, kind of tune out from that and just settle into to a pace that feels good. And so that's like one strategy I like to use to boost athletes confidence um, well in advance of race day. I love that. I, I I feel like I do something similar, but I use different wording that all sells athletes to be like, okay, in the second half of this run, for instance, what I want you to do is to just run a fun pace. Don't look at your watch, like a fun, steady pace, right? And for, it depends on the athlete, obviously, but a lot of them, that's kind of like gives them the license to just like let it fly and not worry about it. And they just feel like, all right, I just want to have fun here. And you know, for the most of us, running faster is just more fun. <laughs> so no one's like, you know what? My fun pace is slow as possible. You know, so it, it usually <laughs> yeah. usually correlates to basically kind of like easy plus or marathon light kind of pace. Totally. Love that. All right, here we go. Let's talk about the transition for folks who are thinking about possibly doing a 50k right so both of you are ultra runners you've had some great experiences and you coach marathoners as well so i can't think of two people who would be better served to answer this question so stephanie we'll start with you when you are talking to somebody who's considering jumping up from the marathon to the 50k i guess first of all what are some of the questions that you get or some of the concerns that you get that you feel like you need to address right from the jump yeah um you know i'll I'll preface this by saying that, like, I do think that the transition from the road marathon to the 50K is probably one of the easiest transitions out there in distances. Um, And not solely just because, you know, it's just, oh, just five miles longer. Um, But I mean, the the effort um, between like marathon effort and 50K effort, you know, on the road um, is going to be incredibly similar. Um, I guess the other side of that coin, though, is I do have a handful of athletes that will come to me and they're like, hey, you know. I have this lifetime goal of qualifying for the US 50K team, you know, and where I'm at right now with my marathon fitness. Um, I think that's realistic because it's just extending out, you know, my marathon pace for five more miles. Um, and I think right there is where I usually kind of pop in with athletes. And I'm like, well, that is true. Like that, that definitely is true. But, you know, road marathon effort and 50 and road 50K effort, that there is a difference, um, you know, and there, we have to acknowledge that we can't just like pace the race as if this is a road marathon and then just try to hold on for that last five miles. There's a true difference in effort there. Um, and for you know, anyone who's ever speaking, run a marathon, that's basically <laughs> what you're saying is hit, hit the wall at mile 20 and hold on for another 10 or 50% exactly. more of the race. Right. Right, 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 right. Um, you know, and for me in my own training, like my, my coach Pat even like prescribes me sometimes like in my long runs, if we're looking to, you know, hit a progression, you know, he's very specific. He's like, all right, like we're going to hit easy, moderate, which is for you a hundred K effort. Then we're going to dial it, you know, we're going to inch our way down towards 50 K effort. And then, you know, marathon effort last mile at half marathon effort. So for me, it's like, it's a very intuitive way of like delineating between all of those efforts. So I think that's kind of like the first, um, kind of concept that I review with athletes that are looking to make that transition is that there is a definite difference in effort. And we can't just think of it as like, well, you know, you know, seven minute per mile pace is, is comfortable right now for my marathon effort. We really have to like dial it back and be like, okay, like, but this is truly a different race, you know, even though it's, even though I just said that it's probably one of the, the easier transitions. Um, I think kind of um, another, um, you know, kind of just point um, to make with that transition is 
I think that for athletes looking to make the transition from sub ultra distances to the 50k and beyond, um, that, and I'm sure Adam will agree with me here is that we really have to be sure that on the run, um, nutrition is dialed in. I feel like that is hands down the biggest difference, um, between going past 26.2 miles. Um, I think a lot of sub ultra distance runners, particularly on the roads can maybe kind of get away with, um, being on maybe the lower end of caloric, um, and electrolyte replacement. Um, but the longer we're out there, the longer we're on our feet, um, that just becomes so critical. Um, And I feel like knowing your body and knowing what works for you in terms of fuel and, like I said, electrolyte replacement is key. Um, And kind of like a failure to acknowledge that aspect of ultra training is probably the first thing that will bring, you know, an athlete to their knees um, when it comes to making that transition. Uh, So true. And, yeah, if I could just add a couple things and echo, Stephanie, all of that great, uh, great advice. Yeah, like nutrition and training training that, um, on long runs and in key workouts and training is so key. You know, I've, I've seen it with, uh, not only athletes I coach, but athletes that I race, you know, like, uh, I, when I see people with no nutrition at a race, I'm like, it's over. Like you're not going to last, you know? And, and there's like a mega fade. We see it. And, um, yeah. So getting that really dialed in training and embracing, um, you know, carbohydrates is fuel. I'm, I'm a big proponent of that for, for glycogen replenishment. Um, and then, yeah, like one other, uh, uh, thing I wanted to touch on that Stephanie mentioned was the, uh, that kind of difference in going from, you know, 26.2 to 50 K there's a big mental difference. Cause when you get to like mile 20 in a marathon, as Matt mentioned, you're kind of smelling the finish line, but when you get to 20 in a 50 K you're thinking, okay, I have like 10 and a little bit more miles to go. And so, um, it, I think just like acknowledging that as Stephanie said up front and acknowledging that it requires um, perhaps more disciplined pacing, um, you know, coupled with the fueling is really critical for success. So what are some of the differences in the training besides like Stephanie mentioned, obviously dialing in the nutrition is more important and making sure that in your training runs that you have all of that stuff dialed and you know what works for you um, just from a you know, you can take however you want, but how, how, how do some of your training plans all differ between marathon and 50K, assuming that the elevation change is relatively similar for each, right? So say an athlete is running a marathon and then jumping up to 50K, but ultimately the elevation change is staying constant for both. Yeah, great question. So again, like um, I think for folks like, you know, uh, hoping to step up to the 50K distance from marathon, one thing that's uh, probably, in my opinion, like the fundamental building block is consistency over time. And so really making sure that we're like just getting in weeks and months, hopefully years of like um, consistent, relatively injury-free training is like key for making that step really smooth. Um, on top of that, like uh, making sure that we are really practicing and it, you know, even with athletes I coach, I say it in my intake emails before we start working together, I remind them in training, but I think it's kind of um, this old paradigm that we're trying to shed of like, let me try to bring as little as possible on my training runs rather than let me try to fuel this and hydrate so that I feel as good as possible to the last step. Um, And so oftentimes when athletes are kind of coming into race day or post race, they're like, yeah, 
I only ate like maybe a hundred calories an hour. And I'm like, oh, that's like exactly the opposite of what we've been talking about this whole time, you know? So, But I'm Anton um, Kropichka, Adam Mary. Don't yeah, you know that? I, I just, I'm, I'm going minimalist the whole way. Clothing, food, all the whole, the whole deal. I know. Well, it's crazy too, because even Anton, you know, uh, these days acknowledges the kind of um, how crazy that was and how it probably led to a lot of his uh, injury mm-hmm. injuries over the years. And so, yeah, I think from a training standpoint, from a workout standpoint, it's really not too different in terms of the um, workouts or long runs. For me, like with 90, 90 plus percent of athletes, I'm not giving them a long run longer than three hours, like period. That's really quite a long, long run because usually the long runs I give do have some tempo effort in it. And so, you know, most of the time athletes are getting like two, two and a half hour long runs, whether they're training for the marathon or um, even like 50 milers. Um, so yeah, I don't think the workouts, uh, from my standpoint are too much different. So Stephanie, one thing that we talked about before we started recording was just the, the gap between these events. And one thing that I brought up was that like, oftentimes we see people say, all right, I did a half marathon and they, there really isn't the hesitation to jump up to the marathon. And yet there seems to be a hesitation between these two events. And you know, I think the amateur psychologist within me would say, well, probably part of that is just that, like the marathon is in both names of these two events, whereas the 50K is like completely different, um, you know, uh, to completely different thing. When you're comparing and contrasting the differences in those two jumps, how, how would you do so? Yeah, for for some reason, I think, um, you know, our running culture is kind of centered around like, oh, maybe like the human limit is like 26.2 miles, Um, you know, and so I, I think it's a I think it's a mental thing, honestly, because think of how many times, you know, even just like very, um, you know, an athlete or a, a person that's just kind of initially starting like getting into running and they're a lot of times they don't just sign up for a 5k you know a lot of times we see athletes that are like all right like i'm going to do this couch to half marathon couch to 10k um which to me you know for all of us it's like well i guess it would be obviously more logical to start off with a 5k but so many people don't do that um i don't know i i think like kind of adam mentioned too with just like time on feet i mean you know if we're if we're looking at, you know, a four, four to, you know, four to five and a half hour road marathoner, and then making that jump up to 50 K, I think it can be really tough to wrap your mind around, you know, being out there, you know, six, you know, seven hours, you know, for, for a 50 K. I mean, that's, you know, all of our work days essentially. Um, you know, so I, I think there's a lot of like mental, you know, a mental component around those, those leaps too. Um, you know, and for those of us that have experience in the ultra running um, world, it's like, yeah, I mean, we, we because we've been to that kind of pain cave and what we know kind of what it takes to kind of push through. Um, but I think it can be intimidating if you haven't really gone to that place where it's like, all right, this is literally the most challenging physical and mental like feat that I've taken on. Um, and if you haven't kind of, um, you know, addressed that, like I said, like that aspect of the pain cave, um, I, I think it can be intimidating to be like, oh, I don't think I can suffer, you know, for, you know, possibly like two more hours out there. That's such a great point. And Stephanie just uh, wanted to add uh, one thing too, that's really a uh, key to think about for athletes making that jump from the marathon to the 50k is the surface, um, whether it's like a, you know, tow path or crushed gravel or dirt versus um, pavement, you know, because it, the impact forces are like really significantly reduced. And so 
Um, I think maybe experimenting with that a little bit in training or just acknowledging and knowing that on race day, you may walk away from a 50K feeling less beat up than from a road marathon. Um, maybe take some of that, um, you know, intimidating factor away. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can honestly say, I think that I have felt that I think I honestly have felt better after a hundred miler, um, like say at like a tunnel Hill course, um, you know, that Adam just mentioned is, you know, crushed gravel, it's dirt. I think I felt worlds better after, um, you know, after my PR race there in 2021 than I did at my PR road marathon, um, you know, back in 2019. Um, and that, that is such a great point that Adam brings up. And I would totally agree. I feel I have felt wrecked after road racing <laughs> and I usually feel pretty good after trail races. Mm-hmm. And for Tunnel Hill, correct me if I'm wrong, Stephanie, but you even like you wrote you wore road shoes for that race. This wasn't like you had to like make it make a change from your footwear. Right. Yeah. I mean, Tunnel Hill is very like, I mean, you usually need at least a set of gaiters on just because that really small, like crushed limestone can really work your way in. But yeah, that's absolutely a course that's non-technical and you can absolutely get away with road shoes on it. All right. Adam, you mentioned before, you, this is the perfect, you're like, you're such a pro. This is your first time on here, but you're already predicting the next questions. You're like getting right into it. So the next one is how long long runs can or should be for marathoners who are on the, maybe the back half of the pack from a racing perspective. So they're in, you know, the high fours, the low fives, right? So they're going to be out there for a long time. And corresponding, if they're out there and hitting like a 20 mile run, obviously a 20 mile run for them is going to be a very different time than say a 20 mile run for either of you. So how does that play in uh, for runners who are in that mix, but want to make sure that they are prepping themselves appropriately for the marathon? Yeah, great question. So um, one like adage that I've always loved, and it's, uh, I think, you know, loosely applicable, at least is uh, a quote from Frank Shorter, you know, uh, 20 miles or two hours, whichever comes first for long runs, that's kind of the guidance of one of the greatest marathoners of all time. So um, yeah, I really do kind of and 20 um, miles, 20 miles always came first for, for Frank Shorter. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah, no, but it's good. It's good perspective, you know, and to keep in mind that like, uh, you know, with, with all the, most of the athletes I coach, I use time as the, uh, metric, uh, because I think it keeps me on the same page with respect to what they're doing. Um, but yeah, I think really like the best, um, I don't know, the best thing that I'm always thinking about as coaches is like, we need to balance like the reward or the stimulus of training with, um, what that's going to do to recovery or our ability to, train the next week and, and keep things rolling. And so, um, with a lot of athletes, uh, that I work with, they're already in kind of an ultra, um, in the ultra space. Um, I really reinforce with them like, Hey, the goal is to get a, uh, long run training stimulus. There's really diminishing returns, uh, after three hours. Um, so, so like three hours is really the, the longest I'll give. And you know, um, there's always going to be that difference between training and race day, whether it's intensity or, um, you know, duration of intensity or just time on feet. And so just, I think building confidence through, um, through finishing long runs, feeling good using some of those strategies we talked about earlier, like maybe wear your race day kit and your race shoes and fuel it like a race and have a little cooler with Coke and things like that. So you can really finish that run feeling strong, I think is a better confidence boost than just adding a couple extra hours and doing a five hour training run. 
Yeah, I I honestly couldn't agree more with everything Adam. We just need to said. get two coaches um, in here who are going to disagree. This this constant agreement is really <laughs> is really bumming me out. I know, and I promise it's genuine too. Honestly, <laughs> um, yeah, I like similarly. I I you know. I really don't give um, long runs, just like Adam said, longer than three hours um, for them. You know, I feel like that maybe the exception would be, you know, if if the athlete has maybe like also extensive, you know, 100K to 100 mile experience too, uh, you know, that would be the only kind of gray area there. But I 100% agree with Adam and that there are like diminishing returns in terms of like really getting in those extra like two to three miles. I mean, we know that like if you can run a solid 18 miler, you know, and that took you three hours to complete, like, are you really going to benefit from going to 20 more miles? I mean, to go two more miles, you know, if that's taking you an additional 25 more minutes, um, I'm just so much in agreement of like, let's use that extra 25 minutes to do a really great, you know, post-run cool down, you know, with a mobility routine um, and really making sure you're replacing, you know, the protein and the carbohydrates um, that you really need in that time frame. Um, and I, I kind of feel the same way with like strength work, um, especially for athletes, you know, I never want it to come off as like, oh, you're a slower athlete because you're going to be out there that much longer. I like on the contrary view it as like, oh my gosh, that is incredibly impressive that you're going to be out there for five, five and a half hours on your feet on pavement. Um, and for that reason, we really need to to be to be sure that we are also prioritizing strength work just just as much as an elite athlete is prioritizing you know those couple days you know in the gym and with weights and things like that um, so to me like like Adam mentioned like that extra time of getting it of tacking on two to three more miles I feel like we can use it um, in different ways that are just as just as beneficial to that athlete um, you know, and kind of, um, along those same lines, you know, maybe in a way that I would maybe structure things slightly differently is for some of my athletes who, who maybe if this is their first, their first road marathon and they're like, Oh my gosh, like I'm having a hard time even stomaching a three hour long run. Um, you know, sometimes I'll break it up, you know, sometimes that might look like, you know, a two and a half hour, you know, a two to two and a half hour long run on Saturday and then getting out for that moderate, you know, maybe 90 minute run on Sunday. Um, and sometimes that can even, we can even get a little bit more specific in terms of the timing of it too. Now that's, that kind of is more like, you know, diving into the, the ultra world. You know, I don't know many road marathoners that are up to like head out for like an evening, two and a half hour run, but sometimes structuring that way can just lessen the time in between those long, those, those runs. Um, so the stimulus is a little bit greater. All right. Adam, th this is exactly – Stephanie, first of all, thank you for leading us here because this is exactly what the follow-up was going to be was once you get a runner to get to that two-and-a-half-hour mark and they feel comfortable in those long runs, they are finishing uh, with energy and it's not like they're not you know having to be you know spatulated off the pavement by friends and family once they finish – how do you then incorporate or start to incorporate, you know, double days, not double days, but you know, say back-to-back longer-ish runs, maybe a Friday and a Saturday or other ways to accumulate some of that mileage that isn't so one-day intensive? Yeah, great question. And so, yeah, that's you kind of nailed it. Like the first step is making sure athletes truly have embraced and are implementing in practice like um, the fueling component. And it's something I've actually had to learn as an athlete too in the last couple of years is um, you know, there's no pride in, you know, avoiding those last few hundred calories, uh, just to say you did like, you know, eat it, eat it and then finish feeling good. And so once athletes have done that, um, in training and we see that, and I see it in the, 
you know, kind of tone of their log messages that they're writing to me. Um, that is when we start. Um, I, I'm a big proponent and fan of uh, splitting kind of um, overall volume across two days because there is a big recovery component that we get from like not just ending the run and maybe putting your feet up or just, you know, stopping running, but sleeping, you know, that's like a big um, way that our bodies recover, not just like muscularly, but at a cellular level. And so um, for most athletes that are training for marathon, or let's just say four plus hour efforts, uh, definitely for six, seven hour type of efforts. I love giving like a two to three hour uh, long run on a Saturday. And then on Sunday, coming back for an hour and a half, maybe hour 45, nice and easy. And I think that helps build the confidence that, um, yeah, you know, you can get out on somewhat tired legs at the end of the week and still run um, close to race pace or not, not race pace, but at a, at a good, easy effort and still move efficiently. All right. I'm going to ask this question to both of you. Um, Stephanie, I heard you agreeing with Adam there. So let me just follow up with you first. What's the efficacy of the order of these, meaning long run, and then the 90 minute easy run over doing it the reverse, right? Well, how, how, from a, just from a scheduling perspective, uh, what are some of the things that you think about in terms of the order of these events? Yeah, that's a really great point and something that I'm like always like wanting to kind of review with all of my athletes so that they understand the intention and like why it's so why I'm structuring their training that way and why I would kind of prefer, of course everything's flexible, you know, it's not like this rubric that has to be hit, but you know, for that spe this specific concept that we're discussing, it's something where I I do like to have that conversation with athletes about why we 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 can't really like flip things or like move the the you know, the 90 minute or hour and 45 minute to another point in the week, um, you know, is because I, I truly view long runs, regardless of if they have, you know, quality work within them as a quality session. And they should, they should be viewed that way because the recovery after requires, you know, just so much more than like your bread and butter 50, you know, to hour long run that you're hitting throughout the week. Um, so for that reason, I always like to prioritize the long run, even though we're kind of discussing two runs that are, are both fairly fairly long for these, um, for these runners, but I always like to prioritize the long run first. Um, you know, and for, for some of our more like experienced athletes, that may mean that that, you know, two to two and a half hour run has some marathon effort or race pace work within it. Um, and then that 90 minute to hour and 45 minute run the following day is kind of more of an extended, you know, duration recovery run where we're not pushing the pace on that run. It's solely to get that, that's that physical. And, and like Adam mentioned that mental confidence booster too, of like, okay, like I'm not destroyed. I wasn't destroyed from this two, you know, two to three hour long run. I can, I can realistically head out for an, a 90 minute to an hour and 45 minute run the following day and ke keep it definitely aerobic, um, but view it more of as, as a recovery run um, in order to get that total like time on feet in a relatively short period of time. Yeah. And I like the psychological benefit there of like usually that second run, which it's, it's been a staple of my schedule now for a while, is like I feel like the second half after I got used to it, the second half of those runs have almost always been better than the first half. So it's kind of like it kind of prepares you for like the the getting in your own headness of some of these longer races of like, oh God, is this, what can I do here? Is this, is this going to stink? Can I still, can, you know, can I, can I complete this? Do I need to like come up with some rationalizations? Why I need to go home right now or whatever. And then conversely, you know, when you have that, especially if you have some quality work within the long run, 
going into it with maybe some fresher legs, maybe you can dial in certain efforts a little bit easier without like, you know, throwing in some threshold work with like 14 miles on your legs, which, you know, for some people could be towing the line between, all right, is this going to, you know, is this person going to be limping after this run? Right. Right. All right, let's dive into one that Stephanie was particularly fond of. She loved this question. Whoever submitted it, thank you. Whatever your name is, I should have put some names next to these questions. I don't know why I didn't do that. But anyway, here we go. How to do easy runs on big, hilly routes. You both live in Colorado. I don't. I have some hills, but I don't have mountains. So Stephanie, talk to me about this. First of all, is it possible to do easy runs on big, hilly routes? And if it's, if so, what does that look like? Yes. So I, the reason why I love this question, um, like, like, like Matt just mentioned, Adam and I both live in Colorado. Um, I, I live up at 8,600 feet. I'm training up here, but the nature of mountain living is that nothing is flat. I'm either going straight up or honestly straight down. Um, and it, it honestly, it took me a while to get used to how, how to approach like my easy days and my recovery runs, you know, because like my neighborhood route, and this isn't even like, there's maybe a, a, I don't know, maybe a mile total out of say like 10 miles of my like daily bread and butter neighborhood, neighborhood route. That's dirt and maybe a little bit of single track, but it's predominantly road. Um, you know, and I'm getting at least a hundred feet per mile, um, going up. So, you know, and that's, that's like my bread and butter road route, you know, and for a lot of runners, you know, that maybe live, um, you know, in certain areas that are just naturally flatter, that's going to be a pretty, to them, that's maybe a more invasive actual trail. To run. the vast majority um, of people listening to this, if you're not familiar with elevation gain, like for the, for most people, if they get 50 feet per mile, they would view that as, you know, a fairly rolling hilly run. Whereas, you know, there's plenty of, you know, Texas and Florida runners listening to this. Who are like, I don't get hundred feet for the whole run, never mind per mile. Right, right. Yeah. So for so for me, that this this question is so, you know, just really hits at home because when I first moved here, it's like, okay, like, you know, I'm keep I feel like I'm keeping the pace easy, but my heart rate is absolutely jacking up, you know, when I'm going up this eight percent grade, you know, little um, you know, out and back in my neighborhood. Um so, you know, that kind of leads me into like the point of, you know, easy is really, you know, an easy or a recovery run is really a feeling, right? Like, you know, it's not a pace. It's not a number. Um, you know, when I was a little bit more focused on like sub ultra, um, you know, road racing, I was, I just, I always had these numbers like at the forefront and, you know, for, for whatever reason, it's like, you know, even though this is an easy run, I ideally like it to be, you know, in the 740 range, you know, and that, the reality is for me on my, like I said, my bread and butter route out here um, from where I live, like that's not going to be a truly easy run for me. Um, so um, actually a conversation with my own coach, um, you know, who's, you know, finished in the top 10 at Western States numerous times, Olympic trials qualifier. He's actually a huge proponent and has encouraged me, you know, and, you know, and the way I approach um, coaching my own athletes is there's nothing wrong with walking, you know, the uphills and power hiking them. Um, especially when you're giving yourself that, like, if you're first starting out on a big hilly route, you need to give yourself, you know, a grace period of four to six weeks, you know, for your body to really respond to that stimulus and for you to really get your climbing legs 
under you. Um, you know, and for so specifically during that period of time, it's totally fine to be, you know, just power hiking. You don't even have to be power hiking. Just make sure you're keeping things aerobic and feeling easy, you know, on those climbs. Um, because it's really going to negate, you know, the whole point of an easy recovery run. If you're really pushing it to maintain, you know, the same pace that you were running on the flats or even the downs when you're going up, I mean, you're just going to kind of jack your heart rate up and then you're not going to be able to get it back down to recover in order to, you know, continue on throughout the run when you're coming back down. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's one of those things too, where I feel like if you're new to a kind of a hillier route, I think the dynamic warm up um, really becomes more critical too. I know that's kind of an offshoot of this question, but, um, you know, I'm kind of entering into my mid thirties now. And I, I just have realized that I can't head out for these, even though it's an easy run, even though I'm not pushing it on the climbs, I can't really head out without at least, you know, using my percussive massage gun on my calves, doing some glute activation. Um, I think those things are really key um, when we're starting to look at um, some of these hillier routes, um, if that's where you're living and if that's what you have available to you to train on. So key. So key. Yeah. If I can add a couple things like Big fan of the dynamic warm up leg swings uh, are my go to love them. Um, but then yeah, like another thing, Stephanie, you mentioned, but to acknowledge is like, you know, I live in Golden, Colorado, which is 6000 feet, you're living at 8600 feet. So the altitude is a big factor too. And you're there's less oxygen up there. So uh, your heart rate is going to spike a lot higher than it would at sea level. Um, and so yeah, just like for I guess for my answer to this question, like, um, acknowledging that you're getting an additional, there's an additional facet to your training when you're running over hills, there's a much bigger strength component, which is great. Um, and to embrace that is, uh, is a good thing. Um, and just to really like, uh, echo and double down on what Stephanie said about easy should be a feeling, not a pace. And so that's something that can really benefit you as well. Um, really dialing into that perceived effort or perceived exertion, it'll benefit you as you step up to a 50k or beyond uh, in ultra distances, it's really beneficial. And if you start to um, dabble into trail running, where the you know elevation gain and loss is quite frequent over the race, it's really beneficial to to be able to just feel what does easy feel like, what does moderate feel like. Am I pushing too hard? Because pace goes out the window when you're running over rocks and roots and up mountains and down. So um, yeah, I think really embracing on easy runs. Um, hiking or walking um, is an opportunity and not, um, you know, a marker of a failure. Because when you're running um, over hills, th- you know, when I race, sometimes I'm walking, you know what I mean? So it, there's no shame in that. And it's um, often the best strategy to, to running your best race. All right. So Stephanie, you mentioned that you are in a position where, you know, you are for lack of a better word, like basically constrained by your geography. Like you don't have <laughs> a choice. You're going to run a right. hilly route mm-hmm. in every direction, right? Mm-hmm. There are certain people, I say, I'm one of them. Like I could go out and do a run that has 100 to 125 feet of elevation gain on average per run if I take a left out of my street. But if I take a right, I can do pretty much the opposite. So I live in a spot where I actually have choices. So if you have a runner who is in a similar position, say that I'm in, where I could do a big hilly easy route, or I could do something pretty flat, or I could do kind of anything in the middle, what would you tell one of your athletes who um, is trying to you know, make this decision, but also trying to make sure that they're not 
pushing it in places where would ultimately in the long term maybe um, not help them? Sure. I think um, I think the best way to approach this is actually um, a point that Adam made is that hills, um, you know, and running on a hillier route is is an additional facet to your training. Um, and it's something that absolutely does have to be acknowledged. Um, you know, so it it uh, it obviously wouldn't be ideal, say, you know, if an athlete had like a Wednesday quality session, you know, with interval work, you know, tempo effort, things like that. It's, it's not really going to benefit the athlete, um, you know, to head out on their Tuesday run, um, you know, that maybe isn't technically a recovery run because they're kind of freshening up going into that Wednesday session. But it's not going to be a benefit, um, you know, to them to really start to, to head out the day prior to a session that we really should be prioritizing and for them to be kind of really hammering it away on those climbs. Um, you know, I'm someone that I but conversely, I mean, I don't think that everyone would probably agree with me on this, but sometimes I like to use like a hillier route as a recovery run solely because it's 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 dialing me back um, in terms of like, you know, I just know like by the nature of the terrain that my speed is it's, you know, the paces are going to come down. And I had like, like Adam said, I have the opportunity um, to walk or to power hike. I really like how Adam phrased that um, because I think we really need to be viewing, um, you know, walking, power hiking, you know, for all of our listeners um, that are in the ultra world, this is, you know, you're this is already going to be something that's a part of your repertoire and your training. Um, but I feel like a lot of subultra roadrunners are so hesitant, you know, across the board. And that's why I brought up my coach who was like, no, like I'm, you know, if I'm going to visit my parents in a super hilly area, you know, that's along the Appalachian, I'm a thousand percent walking up those, even if it's like on a, a paved, you know, neighborhood route and not, you know, a specific trail. Um, I love that because there's also that that there's a psychology element too because you have people like it's one thing to run it's one thing to walk up a trail right where well, you're the mm -hmm. only one there right it's a whole different thing to be walking a mile from your house where you're like oh there's my neighbor who's watching me walk and there's another neighbor who's watching me walk and there's my kids who are watching me walk sure sure um, but yeah like sometimes like I said like sometimes I'll use like you know you know, Matt, you mentioned you have choices. My choices are really like, all right, like hilly or like even freaking hillier. Um, <laughs> Sometimes some some I'll choose the hillier route, you know, for a true recovery run after, you know, after a long run where I've done, you know, three by three miles at marathon effort or something just to kind of work different muscles. Um, you know, if I've, if I've done that quality session on like a flat path down the hill, um, you know, down in Denver, sometimes it's nice to just really slow things down. Like we, like we've been saying, and hammering away, like keeping that easy effort, you know, a feeling, um, you know, really being intuitive about what that feels like. Um, you can still use those those hilly routes to your advantage. Um, and a hilly route doesn't have to be something that's like, you know, just so invasive and so challenging. Um, you know, you don't have to be sprinting up the hill, you know, or like, or, or even like you don't, you also don't have to be really pushing the effort, um, you know, on the downhills. That's also something that I have to kind of keep in check. It's like, yeah, I mean, when I'm coming down this 12% grade, you know, hill from my neighborhood, it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't be like dipping into the six thirties, like, even though like, because of the nature of gravity taking me down, it feels easy. It's just things like that, where it's like, we really don't have to be hammering away on routes like that. We can truly use them as recovery sessions, um, but just keeping effort and that feeling at the forefront. Adam, I was going to ask you about that thing that, that Stephanie just touched on was 
the other side of this conversation, which is the downhills, right? So assuming that the downhills are not technical and you and you could open up if you wanted to, I could see the benefit depending on the grade to kind of letting it fly on the downhill in a way that actually might reduce some contact force as opposed to kind of pumping the brakes and maybe all of a sudden you're running in a way either from a speed perspective or from a form perspective, which might have some deleterious effects as opposed to maybe even running faster uh, over that same stretch. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, I am uh, partial to the downhills. It's some of my favorite uh, type of terrain to run. Um, But there is a sweet spot for sure. Just like when you're running uphill, as Stephanie was mentioning, you know, the impact forces are reduced, which is of benefit, certainly on easy runs as well. Um, You're, you know, like you're not putting as much uh, load on your muscles in your joints when you're climbing. Uh, There is a sweet spot when you're descending of maybe um, opening up your stride just enough so that it's fluid and smooth. But um, certainly, and this is something I use... um, you know, purposefully as an intervention with athletes getting ready for particularly hilly races or mountainous races is really running those downs hard because it does uh, damage your quads um, quite significantly. Folks might be familiar with DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. So that's uh, something we can use to get our our legs ready with those eccentric muscle contractions um, for races. But I think in training for most folks, I try to recommend like, when you're running downhill, if there's a little like, um, you know, crushed gravel shoulder you can hop onto just to like take the edge off that uh, impact, do it. Um, and then, yeah, unless there's a specific kind of um, race motivated or objective motivated uh, benefit to getting that, uh, you know, uh, eccentric uh, contraction adaptation, uh, I recommend folks run that pretty smooth and um, controlled. You guys are the best. This was so, so worth it. Uh, man, I'm learning everything so much listening to you too. I really appreciate it. So before we get going, we'll uh, you guys can do a call out for people who want to learn more from you. Maybe, maybe you can be their coach uh, at some point. Adam, if someone wants to learn more about you and your coaching business, where should they go? Yeah. So um, my last name is Mary, like Merry Christmas, M-E-R-R-Y. So if you go to runmary.com, you can learn more about my coaching Uh, And then you can follow me on Instagram too. Uh, My name is Adam Mary. uh, So you can learn more there as well. All right. And how about you, Steph? Um, I am a coach with Lift, Run, Perform. Um, Probably the best way to find me is um, also on Instagram. Um, My handle is at Stephanie Ann Flippin. I know that's a mouthful. Um, I'm sure Matt will put the funky spelling in there. Um, But yeah, that's where you can find me. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and good luck to all of your racing in the future. Thank you so much, Matt. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again. All right. I love these episodes so much. And I know that you do too, because I get so much feedback on it. It's great. I'm so excited for it. Next time I put out another call to action on Instagram for people to submit questions, please make sure you do. We get so many good questions on there and it's just such a treat. And thank you to everyone who's done that in the past. It's simply awesome. You can follow me on Instagram at rambling underscore runner. And that's where basically all my social media is for the, for the most part. Uh, so thank you so much for submitting questions. It's the best. I love these episodes so very much. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. 
Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.